Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But this evening... We have the fabulous Jonathan Evison. Um, he is the author of the novels West of Here and All About Lulu, which, by the way, were both Skylight staff picks. And I know that uh, the revised fundamentals of caregiving is also going to be a, a Skylight sc staff pick. Um, so far, uh, the New York Times has said, a most stealthily powerful novel, so poignant yet improbably funny. And the Boston Globe has said, uh, Evison's prose is replete with his gifts for witty imagery and turns of phrase. The revised fundamentals of caregiving is even keeled, big hearted, and very funny and full of hope. Um, Jonathan Evison is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel West of Here and All About Lulu, which won the Washington State Book Award. And in 2009, he was the recipient of a Richard Buckley Fellowship from the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Please welcome. Jonathan Evison. There are two people I don't know. This is always awkward. Because it's like you guys have already heard me say everything, so just bear with me because I'm going to go with the old DiMaggio. If there's two people that know me, I'm going to repeat myself for the rest of you. Um, so yeah, also in that New York Times review, Janet Maslin pointed out that I have a real way with losers, she said. And um, since you guys know me, we all know that that's no real coincidence. Uh, I did an awful lot of losing, an awful lot of losing. Uh, I wrote uh, eight unpublished books, six unpublished novels, an unpublished memoir, and at least a story collection before Lulu came out. Um, ten years ago, I was working at an ice cream stand in my mid-30s, and um, my my first wife had just had an affair with one of my good friends and and just left me like without warning and i was just totally totally leveled my the next two years of my life was like kind of a blur and and that's one of the things that it, that informed this book of, of all the books i've written so far uh i think this book is the one that's most personally informed by my own life and it was that sort of early midlife crisis period and also uh the freak accidental death of my sister on her 16th birthday 
and uh, watching my parents like deal with every uh, uh, every parent's worst nightmare, and watching how it, it totally you know exploded my family. And um, so uh, you know, with my last book, I, I, every time I, I read a book, I, I'm really kind of trying to swing for the fences as much as possible. I really want to challenge myself as an artist, as a human being. And and with West of Here, what that meant was like. Uh, more technical and, and formal challenges, you know. I wanted to write this big book with all these points of view, and I wanted to subvert the tropes of historical fiction. And I had all these sort of heady ideas of what I, how I was challenging myself. Uh, whereas with this book, it was very different. It was uh, I wanted to challenge myself emotionally. I wanted to do some emotional dredging and, and, and plumb some emotional depths that uh, I felt like could be cathartic for me. Stuff I'd kind of been uh, holding down. So like the first time I got up to talk about this book, I had never talked about. About it before and and I got rushed into this uh, library conference at, at, at BEA with like 700 librarians and they rushed me up because they had first they took me to the wrong banquet and I was sitting there going hmm hi hi booksellers like all these booksellers I knew because I'd been touring around and I'm like hmm, this doesn't seem right these are booksellers I thought it was librarians and like 15 minutes into the thing the double doors just slide up and somebody grabs me by the collar and they're rushing me across the Javits Center which is like two miles long and they throw me up and Dennis Lehane is just like taking you know getting down from the stand to a standing ovation and they throw me up there and I haven't really given any thought and you know I'd been talking to Craig at Algonquin about it and he says talk about your sister so, like, I get up there, and I immediately just start crying. I get, like, two words out, and I just, like, I just fell apart. And it was great in the sense that, like, you know, for three days, every librarian in America wanted to hug me. So it kind of worked, but, like, I thought, oh, fuck, is this going to go? And, and that was the other thing. I said, fuck. When I cried, I was wiping tears. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm sorry. And, like, one lady complained. So I got called into the principal's office with my publisher, and I'm like, look, I got 699 hugs and one fuck. And I got in a big trouble for the fuck, and so they wanted to make sure I didn't say fuck on this tour, and I think I just fucked that up. Um... <laughs> So sorry if anybody's um <laughs> Also I'm a little gassy cuz this is my 8th city and I thought 5 Guinnesses might help that. No, not the case. So bear with me. Um anyway, uh so I'll just going to keep talking and kind of spiraling. One of the reasons I write uh is because I can edit myself which I can't do when I talk. Um so anytime anybody wants to interrupt or ask a question or whatever, uh, I guess I'll go ahead and kind of read. I'm kind of nervous because you're all my friends. It's weird. If you put me in front of 100 strangers, I'm like an old pro, but you put me in front of a room full of my friends, and I'm just like, oh, God, I'm just dreading this. That's the problem. I know you do like me. I'm afraid you're not going to like me when I'm done. Um, so I talked about the blur, and it's really true. Um, like... You know, this book, I wanted to write this book about irredeemable loss, but uh, I knew it had to be funny because it just had to be, you know. Um, when I frame this book, when I tell people uh, how it's about a guy who's lost absolutely everything and he starts taking care of a kid with muscular dystrophy, everyone's like, oh, God, you know. But um, I'm going to read something more lighthearted just to prove to you that it is, it is a lighthearted journey. But, like, what happened when I was in that blur like 10 years ago is that 
It wasn't funny when it happened. It was really, I was kind of in dire straits. And it was actually the only time in my life that I quit drinking. And, you know, you know, I drink. And I quit because I knew this is a bad idea. Better not to tempt Bacchus when, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, have any solid ground to stand on. But I wound up in just some of the most comically absurd situations. And some people, like, read this book and they're like, uh, I don't know, it gets a little out of hand with the car chases and this stuff. But I'm telling you, I mean, my life was like that. I was, at one point, I was stalking a... a a trapeze artist and I mean I really don't have any like sort of real memory of it you know what I mean it's a blur I was getting I, I yeah I mean I, I got in a car chase I, I tried to I bit a piece out of a man in a street fight I mean like I, I attempted cannibalism or something um, so I did end up in like so people have a hard time believing that this this novel that's about the depths of sadness and irredeemable loss can actually be so madcap, but that, that was my experience with grief. Like, uh, and that's also why I start the novel two years after the what we call the disaster in the book, because those first two years, to anybody who's ever really grieved hard, you know, are just like, you don't see the humor. But like, stepping back and looking at my life ten years ago and going, fuck, I was stalking? Uh, wait a minute, was I really stalking a trapeze artist? Um, and I was. And it was funny, looking back, but not so much then. Um, another thing that happened to me, and anybody who's ever had a midlife crisis will remember this period of their life where they're trying to get back on the horse. And um, so, you know, I, I started, like, uh, you know, hanging out and, and trying to date waitresses, you know, like doing that, like, sit in their section thing. And then, you know, I would actually have a little success, and, but then I would go home and, then the, and we would have, like, what should have been a one-night stand, but I wouldn't want to leave in the morning. <laughs> it was so sad. They'd be like, no, you got to go. And I'm like, do you want to go? I mean, I want to go to the duck pond or say, you know, I mean, something totally inappropriate. Like, can we share our lives together? Can, you know, let me show you my favorite architecture and, and then we'll go have breakfast. And they're like, no, we had sex and you have to leave. My boyfriend's coming in like 15 minutes. So um, this is like when Ben is kind of in that point where his, his buddies on his softball team are trying to get him back in the game and like take him to parties. And um, it's called Battle of the Blur. None of my zippers work anymore, which must be some kind of metaphor. Listing ever so slightly before the urinal, I'm not, I'm not surprised to discover that my fly is already open. Tonight is Max's birthday. We're having a little party at the grill. Sorry. Ben is taking, I, I always do this, I didn't give you enough preface. Ben is, is you know, he, he was a stay-at-home father, and, and, and the job market has basically passed him by. Um, so uh, he ends up taking a 28-hour night course in caregiving called The Fundamentals of Caregiving, ergo the title, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, and uh, because he's a natural kind of nurse guy. I mean, he was a stay-at-home father. He's used to caring for people. I don't know why. I was compelled to tell you that. You'll see why, I think. Um, Tonight is Max's birthday. We're having a little party at the grill where happy hour ended some two and a half hours ago. I'm wearing my blue cords for the occasion in spite of the lazy zipper because of the only pants I own that still manage to achieve some kind of slimming effect. An illusion I fear that's beginning to lose its crisp edges with every cheeseburger. This evening is sure to end badly. Already I can feel hints of the old blur coming on, the dull throbbing in the chest, the, flick, the thick slow coursing of blood behind the temples, the heaviness of limb which signals my approaching oblivion. 
Zipping up my fly futilely, I'm determined to fight the blur this evening. Determined to feel and remember, to walk among the living, even though I have nothing to hope for. Rejoining the party to the tune of motorheads fast and loose, I see that a second larger table now abuts our own. We're being joined by five of Max's Bremerton friends. The tall guy with the trench coat and the dirty glasses is vaguely familiar. There's a short, ample redhead dressed like a witch. Her black leggings fit like sausage skin, which is appropriate because this is basically a sausage party. The other two Bremerton friends are also dudes, skinheads dressed like rappers with tattoos above the collar, both of them with initials for names. Not JJ or BJ, but awkward sounding ones, GR and CL, or PK and KW. Full introductions are made, shots are procured, and the bar is soon abuzz with our chatter. The jukebox cycles Motorhead, Bon Jovi, The Boss. The tables get stickier by the minute. The world is still tactile, still memorable. I'm winning the battle. The tall guy is talking, the tall guy is talking to me about Atlantis, the Pillars of Hercules, pill, sorry, Pillars of Hercules, ziggurats in pre-Columbian South America. I wish he'd clean his glasses. It's all I can do to resist leaning over and doing it myself. Teo is arm wrestling a skinhead who keeps calling him bro, while Max appears to be making headway with the redhead, who giggles more than you'd expect from a witch. <laughs> She's unwittingly slopped a big gop of nacho cheese on her cape. These people are slobs. I'm beginning to feel superior this evening in spite of all evidence to the contrary. Your fly's open, says Forrest, nudging me. Dude, what about the Olmec, says Dirty Glasses. Big Red giggles as Max leans over and shovels the cheese off her velour cape, licking his finger. A little orange string of it still dangles from his mustache, but not for long. Big Red leans over and licks his mustache clean. I'm out, Holmes, Forrest says, clapping my back as he stands. I want to see the girls before Mel puts him to bed. He looks around the table and back at me a little uneasily, as though he can see my future. You sure you don't need a ride? I'm good. He's going to a party with us, Max says. And sure enough, 20 minutes later, after we've cleared the big tab with the usual confusion, the whole group of us arrive at a house party out near Olympic College campus in a sagging green craftsman with a dead lawn. No sooner have I mounted the front steps than I'm accosted on the porch by a ruddy little pug-faced man who pulls me aside and starts breathing a fog of Jägermeister into my face. He's totally gooned, his eyes lolling around in his head. Dude, dude, check the shit out, he says. What? He wrestles clumbly, clumsily with his open cell phone until his eyes light up, and he thrusts the phone up into my face. Dude, check it out. What am I looking at? Wait, 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 this way, he says, tilting the phone horizontally and pushing it even further into my face. Squinting, I still don't know what I'm looking at, but it's fleshy and hairless. Is that your baby, I ask? Dude, that's my dick. I push past him and he slaps me on the back. Oh man, we're cool, right? We're cool? <laughs> Dirty glasses Dale and I help ourselves to a beer and settle at the kitchen table, vacant but for a jumble of empties. A pair of short girls sashay into the kitchen, also talking loudly. One of them, the blonde, has the most vivid fake tan I've ever seen. She's perfectly orange. Her eyebrows are albino blonde. They look like they might burn your fingers if you touch them. Apes, <laughs> hey, Loopa Loopa. 
But the reference is lost on Dale, who is in earnest, still furrowing his brow at the inexplicable development of the water clock in a culture that couldn't grow beets a hundred years prior. <laughs> Gotta be Atlantis, he says. There's no other explanation for the widespread development of technology that quickly. Is anyone sitting here, says Oompa Loompa? Go for it, I say. Construction cone orange or not, Oompa Loompa is smooth-faced and kind of cute. Her friend, not so much. She's got a big overbite. From the side, she looks like a bottle opener. But I'm guessing she probably looks better through Dale's smudged glasses because he's all over right from the get-go. So do you live here, Oompa Loompa says to me? Nah, we're with Max. Max just left, she said. Oh, well, I guess we're here by ourselves. I'm Cindy, she says. I'm Ben. Suddenly, there's a blood-curdling scream from the bathroom down the hallway, and the pug-faced kid with the cell phone bursts out of the door, clutching his groin with both hands. He slumps in the threshold of the kitchen with everybody staring at him. Dude, he says, come here. Come here. You got to help me, man. Me? Dude, you got to come here, man. You got to. Waving me onward over his shoulder, he begins shambling down the hallway, clutching his abdomen and moaning like Tina Turner as he goes. Warily, I follow him to the bathroom, and he shuts the door behind us. What's the deal, I say? He corkscrews his face, and fresh tears stream down his cheeks. I was smoking, he moans, releasing his crotch to expose his wrinkled red member. Jesus, I say, recoiling. It hurts, he says. I reach for the doorknob, but he grabs my arm pleadingly. Dude, what do I do? I'm serious. What do I do? It hurts. I don't know. Put a Band-Aid on it. He looks up into my face with the most desolate and apologetic of all expressions. The expression of a guy who just burned his penis with a cigarette and wants you to put a Band-Aid on it. Dude, I can't do it, he says. I'll pass out. I heave a long sigh. Rifling through the medicine cabinet, I wonder why it is the winds of fate have blown me here. Why in a house full of people did the little pug-faced man choose me to minister to his injured penis? How did he know? Hold still, I say. He winces at first, but then sighs with relief as I apply a curly cue of neosporin to the pot blister. His dingus feels like a salamander between my fingers, though nothing in my manner suggests that I am disgusted. I am, after all, a pro. You're not a fag, are you, he says. Nope, I say, smoothing over the band-aid and releasing his penis. That's good. He gives me a pat on the shoulder. Hey, man, seriously, thanks. No problem, I say, rinsing my hands. Do me a favor, though. Yeah, dude, name it. Stay the fuck away from me. I can see the hurt in his little pug face. But you know what? I don't give a damn anymore. I'm developing a taste for superiority. Rejoining Dale and the girls in the kitchen, I see that Dale is making headway, talking some crap about the Phoenicians owing their ancient trade routes to the Atlanteans. The bottle opener is either smitten with Dale or she's from Atlantis because she's eating it up. What was that all about, Oompa Loompa wants to know upon my reappearance? Guy hurt his thumb, I say, reaching into the fridge for a beer, popping it and guzzling a third of it in one motion. That guy's a freak, she says. Look who's talking, I want to say. You look like a fucking jack-o'-lantern. Yeah, total freak. Your fly's undone, she says. Yeah, I know. Dale has produced a pot pipe from the depths of his trench coat and begins loading it. I don't know how he can see what the fuck he's doing with those glasses. He sparks the pipe and passes it around. The conversation becomes hopelessly stilted. Even Dale can't seem to string together sentences. Cindy is changing colors like a lava lamp. 
the tentative emergence of a freakishly overweight tabby from behind a dead ficus near the head of the hallway ultimately provides the group with a much-needed focal point. For three or four minutes, we sit stupefied, sipping our beers, observing the beast every moment, every movement without comment as it licks and circles and runs its spines along the bottom of the refrigerator. I can feel my jaw slackening. I'm drained of all my drunken swagger, all my superiority. I begin to wonder if there's anywhere I belong or to anyone who I could ever belong again. A trapeze artist, a sword swallower, Janet. Certainly I don't belong here. A small part of me, perhaps the hopeful part, or maybe the courageous part, wants to suggest that we all pile into the Subaru and go for Slurpees. But then I remind myself that I'm a would-be divorcee who used to be a father, and most of me wants to run from the house as though it were burning. Okay, I shouldn't have read that. I don't like it. It's kind of a true story, though. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's why, I mean, that's the truth. I did. I put a bandaid on some guy's penis at a party. And he knew. I don't know. He knew that I was the guy that would do that. That's great, Jonathan. All right. I don't know. I'm having a hard time with this book. I'm beating myself up a lot because it's so personal, you know. I don't. I don't. I, I don't know. It's it's weird for me. I feel like I'm putting myself on uh, on uh, trial or something and failing. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being my yes man, Kenji. And letting me always drink your beer and sleep on your couch as well. So, this is objective. So, where do you get your ideas? Again, I mean, like, you know, this novel actually seems really safe, but I think it was actually really risky for me because it's potentially so cliched. You know what I mean? It's like I was really resistant to the idea of this is everybody characterizes it as a road novel and uh, I really did everything I could to subvert that. I really did not want to write a road novel. I was so resistant to that idea because it's just so done, you know. I mean Homer wrote a pretty good one. Steinbeck, Twain, you know. I mean it's been done so many times but like I mean honestly the characters uh, just really drove me to the road. I mean my characters were essentially just literally driving in circles and they needed the road to deliver them and and uh so yeah, i don't know i mean i felt like it was actually a, i felt like i was taking like i mean i had to use a lot of the tropes of the road novel i had to kind of stick to i mean i don't know and and like uh i think it works i i hope it works you know what i mean i don't know i don't think any road novels done the restaurants like you did okay good that was mary well, i was gonna ask you about your structure because part of uh, some of the chapters are written where we uh, slowly find out what happened in his past, and so you split back and forth with them. I was wondering if you knew you were going to do that from the beginning, or as goofy as it sounds right from the beginning I uh, I visualized the novel as an artichoke I mean literally like I was peeling back these layers of armor to get to the heart of the story and like that's just how it unfolded you know what I mean like with West of Here I envisioned this sort of web like a like a spider web with this town at the center and all these little like I, I always have some sort of uh, I don't use I use outlines like I write them but like I, I end up erasing them because I find more efficient ways to do what I'm trying to do or else I find complete new things I want to do that I like better so uh, the one thing that stands true to me is usually this initial initial image I have of it and it, for me it was an artichoke and that's how the novel works 
I mean, you just sort of peel back the layers of the story of Ben's defenses, of Ben's grief, until you get to the actual, you know, moment of the disaster, which was another kind of risk because I reveal it so late. Do you know what I mean? And it's not supposed to be a big reveal like, ta-da, because you already know that this horrible thing has happened, but like, he's just not ready until he's developed that much intimacy with the reader, I guess, to like actually share the the really specific the tactile circumstances of it, because you know all along that you know something has happened. Does that help? It was an artichoke. And did you know how you were going to end the book when you No, I really didn't. I mean, like more than anything I've written, it's like I, I really, I really followed my characters. I really believe in that. Like I, 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 I really believe that I keep writing. I mean, obviously, I'm not doing it for the career of writing or the money because like you know who writes eight books with nothing you know what I mean it's like I'd have to be crazy to keep going because I didn't have anything but rejections and they, they, they were just form letters and like I mean I kept licking envelopes and doing my due diligence I mean I knew it was part of the plan I wanted to you know eventually connect with a reader would be nice uh and, and even singular, you know, my mom wasn't even reading this stuff. <laughs> really. I mean, your friends, it's like, hey, dude, you want to read my new novel? And it's like, <laughs> you know, 500 pages. It's not like, you know, bound in any way. And it's like, no, really, I don't. Thanks for asking, though. So, I mean, I always knew I wanted to reach readers. But, like, the reason I do this is because I honestly feel like it makes me a better person. I was a shithole when I was, like, when I was, like, 15, 16 years old. Or, you know, I think by then I kind of started turning around. When I was a kid, I wanted attention so badly that I was really creepy. Kind of a bully, if you can believe it. I mean, small bully. More like the bully that was the fast talker that had the big friends. But, I mean, I picked on the easy targets. I was just, I was just a jerk. I wanted attention so bad that I was just not a very good person. And I feel like since I discovered writing 25 years ago I just bit by become a better person I feel like it makes me a, a more expansive person like it's made me a better husband it's made me a better dad it's made me a better friend I just feel like uh I feel like the novel is the greatest empathic window that humankind has ever ever you know concocted. I mean, I love the visual arts, I love music, I love cinema, but nothing nothing invites that sort of collaboration, that sort of intimate collaboration that a novel does, where writer and reader both crawl inside a character and, and walk in their shoes, and like, that's what I'm in, in it for, and you know, like Nabokov talked about his characters as his galley slaves, like he moved them around and did what he wanted with them to support his big authorial vision, and I feel like... Uh, I'm kind of the opposite. I mean, I want to get something out of it. I want to learn something. And so, like, I, in, in the case of this, I'm trying to explore some of my own grief. But uh, I need that fictive lens, and I need a little distance from it in order to be able to do that. Um, so, like, you know, when I had a little bit of success with Lulu, it would have been really easy for me to write another novel in that voice. Really easy, because it came really natural. And this voice came really natural. But uh, I always want to keep pushing myself somewhere uncomfortable at the risk of maybe losing my entire readership. Uh, you know, maybe. I don't know. But, like, I can't do it. I just can't. I need to push myself because if I don't get anything out of it, I don't expect that the reader could. Maybe I'm wrong there. But, I mean, if, if, I, if I'm not putting it all on the line and I don't have something big at stake and if my novel at some point isn't a big 
mess, then I don't think that, uh, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm being fair to the end user, kind of in a way. I'm not really into the small, perfect novels. I'm, I'm, I like things that uh, delineate and maybe get a little messy and don't answer all your questions, but they, they start conversations and they're thought-provoking. And uh, I guess I'm more concerned with emotional evocation and offering the reader genuine experience because that's what I want. I want to own that narrative. I don't want the, I want the author to just go away. I know there's a time and a place, and this is totally subjective, but like I like Faulkner best when he gets out of his own way. I like James Joyce best when he gets out of his own way and they just tell stories with great characters and great language and just let me get into him. Um, and so uh, I guess the challenge for me is like I want to make it as hard for myself as possible to be invisible and still try to be invisible. I mean, the easiest way to be invisible would be, I think for me, something like this, is like first-person narratives that come, first-person voice novels that come to me quite easily and I can write them quite easily. Uh, but like then with something like West of Here, it's like I wanted to really strain that. I wanted to distress that that possibility. Like I wanted to, I mean, 42 points of view is asking a lot of a reader, but I wanted to find a way to do that that would actually make, be seamless, you know what I mean? It's like trying to do the impossible and failing. You know, that's it. You just fail and you fail and you fail and you fail. And like each book, I want to suck a little less. Eventually, you know, I'll write a book that sucks. Oh, no, I mean, I fail on all number of... I mean, I'm, I, I've yet to write something that really... I mean, I don't know anybody that's a writer that really feels like they've totally succeeded. I mean, most uh, half of you right here are writers. And I, I don't know, do you guys feel like you've ever really totally succeeded? I never do. I don't know what I'd do if I did. Just quit, maybe. Cecil? Um, so you were talking about how this is um, one of your most personal novels, and that, like, you know, sort of it comes from this place 10 years ago, and, like, all this sort of psychic distance that you have. And then you're also talking about how you're trying to push yourself as a writer. How does actually getting this sort of most personal novel out clear the path for whatever you, wherever you want to go next? Yes. <laughs> That's a good question. So good I don't even get it. Um, well, yeah, I guess I don't know that yet. I don't know because I, I'm trying to, I mean, I knew, well, so the next thing I wrote which I finished and nobody gets. It's kind of a disaster, I think. I wrote this novel. It's done. It's called The Dream Life of Huntington Sales. And I was thrilled with it. I loved it. It was like the whole thing was designed to be this exercise in subjectivity. And it's told from 16 points of view. And it, it, it's kind of a genre bender. And it, 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 it subverts uh, the, the reader's expectation at every single possible juncture, I think. But maybe to its own uh, demise. I don't know. My, I mean, my publisher bought it but like I know I haven't talked about it with him but I just get the feeling everyone thinks it's just a fucking hot mess and I'm excited about that because I mean I never I really put it all on the line how did I clear that way for that I guess because I wrote a really intimate novel so I wanted to write this thing that was more expansive I, I've kind of gone back and forth Lulu is first person then I went third person lots of limited points of view then I went back to first person I've been kind of switching back between first person sort of voice narratives and then these bigger third person limit. I really love the third person limited 
point of view. I just think it's like the coolest tool I've learned in 20 years of writing is that, you know, you start to view the story as information and then like there's so many ways to disseminate that information when you have all these limited points of view. It's not always as intimate and sometimes, I don't know, sometimes maybe it doesn't work. I don't know. I'm terribly afraid that the next book is just like nobody gets it. I don't know. But I'm writing a different one now which goes back to a first person. It's a, uh, I just wanted to, uh, write a love story to all the women of my grandmother's generation because when I was 18, 17, 18, I lived in a senior citizen motorhome court and I was the only person under 65 because my grandmother was agoraphobic so I would I lived with her to take care of her. It was my first experience in caregiving actually before I was licensed and um, it was pretty cool because it was the 80s and like there was a liquor barn next door and my dad, since I was living with my grandma, my dad and I actually, I was 17 or 18 and we actually went to the liquor barn and met with the manager upstairs and my dad wrote a note. And so, like, I could buy booze for my grandma. And she would drink, like, a half rack of hams a day just on the slow drip. I mean, she didn't just pound them. She'd drink a half rack a day like clockwork out of a straw. And she would just sit in this corner, and she just never got out of her, like, moo-moo thing. And she just left shit streaks all over the toilet. And she couldn't see anything. And, like, uh... We would just, she would just sit and listen to like, you know, Perry Mason, followed by Ironside, followed by Starsky and Hutch, and like, you know, I would just smoke her palm malls and cut the filters off and drink her beer with her, and it was all well and good, but like outside of this park, there was like 500 people in the park, and, and 75% of them were widowed women, you know, because they were all 75 plus, most of them, and they, they, they had uh, outlived their husbands, and like, you're not supposed to teach an old dog new tricks, but it was really inspiring to be somebody who was just kind of starting their life watching these you know 80 year old women completely reinvent themselves like you know like uh, the book I'm writing called Harriet Chance is uh, you know the first half of the novel is called Mrs. Bernard Chance because that was her life you know for 60 years she was Mrs. Bernard Chance you know she was a she was a you know Eisenhower Republican this was her opinion of this it was basically his opinion and and I saw all these women just totally reinvent themselves in like the most inspiring way at such a late stage of life and I figure well, I've written a coming of age. Now I've written a coming of middle age. I wanted to write a com coming of old age. So now I'm like, I'm going to all these like card games with like 85 year old women and just like collecting their stories and just hanging with them. And um, I don't know how I'm speaking to the question exactly. Did I kind of? All right. Good. I, I get way ahead of myself. It must be weird to be already A little bit. That's how I always worked, though, even when nobody was, you know what I mean? I, uh, I try to be productive, so what I do is uh, I work at three things at once, which sounds like it would be, you know, confusing, but it's not, because it's three completely different skill sets. Like, I'll be taking notes on a novel that I want to write, I'll be, uh, or doing research, and then I'll be copy editing a no novel that's finished, Just more line editing, or there's maybe some structural or story stuff, but mostly editing, and then I'll be composing one, and that's always the hardest. That's, that's where I lead to the other two, because some days you just don't have the focus, or the wherewithal, or the energy to, to actually, uh, to, to compose, so you're like, all right, I'm going to go to the library, I'm going to do some research, or I'm going to outline, or I'm going to copy edit. It's just really important for me to get the work done every day. And so 
it seems like I'm maybe kind of prolific on the surface, but really, I mean, I'm a page a day guy. I, if I get a page a day, I feel lucky. You know what I mean? Page is a good day. Not that if I don't have a couple characters with something at stake in a room, I can't. I, you know, I could write four pages of dialogue, but you know, maybe the next day I get one paragraph. So if I just, but there's 365 days a year, so it adds up. I don't think I'm hurrying, though. I feel like a plotter. That's the honest-to-God truth. I feel like a plotter. It's just that I'm very consistent. I need to do it, man. I mean, look at me. I'm a fucking mess. I'm really a mess. I've had six beers, and I'm hyper. Who's this hyper after six beers? I've slept... I have not slept more than five hours in a night in years. I got a 4 a.m., you know, wake-up call tomorrow, and I'll jump out of bed, probably, puke in a potted plant in LAX, and be on with it. I need to write. That's the bottom line. I really need something to ground me. Without it, I don't. I don't. I don't know what I do. So I guess that makes me kind of lucky, more <laughs> cursed. One of the two. Anybody? Kenji. I, I raised my hand about ten minutes ago, and I think I'm going to try to access back to why I did that. And I think I think I was uh, uh, going to address something you said, which is, is your book is. On the face of it, it's it's uh, about a guy who's a paraplegic, and there's a guy who's the caregiver to this guy. On the face of it, it doesn't seem that interesting, and yet it's so fascinating because it's not just about that. It's really about the interior lives and thoughts of these two guys and what they're going through, what they wish for, what they desire. You know, it's like a, a paraplegic, uh, you know, talking about all these things that he wishes he could do sexually to women that he's completely incapable of. And, you know. <laughs> what just happened? And, and so, so, no, this is good. He's taking the... My, my, my point is just that I find it utterly fascinating. And, and it's, it's such a compelling read because it's about these, these very, very personal things. Um, that, that are also very universal. And, and the fact that on the, the, the surface, it's, it's about a paraplegic and a caregiver, it's, it, 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 it's, it transcends the mundanity of that. That's, that's nice. No Thanks. I don't know how to answer that, but you know, it's weird because it could have been really mawkish. I mean, when you talk about it, I mean, it could have been. That's another thing about it is it could have been really mawkish. Like, I mean, it's like shooting fish in a barrel as far as sympathetic characters. But like right off the bat, I knew that I just I had to paint them like really warts and all, flawed, very flawed right off the bat, and they're they're kind of gross at first. Both of them are just kind of like, oh, these guys are kind of creeps. But like, I think that's the only way to really sort of end into this story and like uh, be fair to the reader like you know what I mean like it's not yeah no but it could have been I mean when I tell people that it's a story about a guy who's lost everything caring for a kid with muscular dystrophy it just sounds like a you know lifetime channel show but like I mean the guys are kind of creepy and really flawed and kind of messed up and just sort of inching their way to some sort of self-improvement I think I'm, I'm really about hope I mean the book to me is just about hope and which is ironic because it's not really that hopeful in the end but my stories are always about hope they just don't go very far I just look at like uh, human drama as being like this is your reality and this is your idealized reality and like 
that's the story in between. That's why I can follow my characters and I know I'll never get lost. That's why I feel like I'm not a high concept guy. I'm not a story point guy. I don't need an outline. All I need to know is this is the reality of my characters and this is where they want to be. And they usually end up about here. But that's enough. That's hope. I mean, you look at Craig and West of here. I mean, the guy quits smoking pot and he moves to Aberdeen. It doesn't sound like a great big victory, but for Craig, it is. Do you know what I mean? That's all we need is just a little hope. I mean, you know, I look at people scratching lotto tickets and I'm like, man, you're missing the point. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you don't want, your life's not going to just change overnight necessarily like that. Like for the better, it certainly can change for the worse more often than the better overnight. But like, you just got to look for, hope is like the shapeshifter. You know what I think is weird about this book is that I think like uh, my grandfather was a minister and my father was a minister and I've always been like, never went to church, never got indoctrinated or anything, but it's kind of weird. There's kind of a Christian ethos to this book in like the best sense, I think. I mean, because it really is about hope when there is no hope to be seen and like trying to find hope. And like in the case of Ben, it's like the guy's literally looking in the rearview mirror for the only place he's ever known hope, but it's not there anymore. So it's about the, the, the need to drive on, you know what I mean? To, to, to move forward. And I see how my unconscious sort of, I keep saying it's my characters, but it's the same thing as my unconscious led me to the road because, you know, it's a vehicle that undid this guy's life and it's a vehicle that's got to deliver him. You know what I mean? Like I didn't think about that, you know, it wasn't like some sort of clever construct for me, but like my unconscious just sort of led me there. My heart kind of led me there or something like that. How, how much of your characters um, do you base on people that you know and or observe versus just, you know, stewing, deep imagination, daydreaming about a person until you arrive at who they are? That varies in general. It's kind of neither of those things a lot of times. Like, Trev in this book is totally my friend Case in a big way, who was one of, when I was a professional caregiver, like, he was he was one of my first clients. And we really did take a trip to Yellowstone. We took a trip to Glacier. We took a trip to... So, I mean, like, I know the travel. I know, you know... But, like, in general, it kind of sounds schizophrenic, but, like, uh, they invent themselves. Like, I invent, uh, I invent uh, you know... Uh, you know, some physical characteristics, an age, a job, a station in life, some hopes, some yearnings, some fears, a little bit of backstory. The character starts to fill out. And eventually, you know, maybe halfway through the novel, maybe it's the third draft. Who knows? But eventually the character actually has its own destiny. You know what I mean? The character really has its own destiny. They make their own decisions. I just set them free in this narrative landscape and they actually will make the decision themselves. So like it's, uh, they, they take on characteristics of people. I know many of my characters are like amalgams physically of different people, but like characters all about the decisions they make. So you know, I mean, really, they, they define their own characters by when I set them free, like, what decision do they make when faced with this? And um, I guess in my heart, I know, I mean, like, if I had to say what this book was about, I'd say it was about love. You know what I mean? It's just basically about trying to learn how to love again or trying to, like, when, when you feel like you're incapable of love. Or I wish I had read a different chapter, kind of, because it wasn't very representative. I, I, I think I read that because it just felt kind of safe for me, like I wouldn't cry or whatever. So, like, I read the kind of wise-ass chapter. Maybe I'll do something differently in the future um, that's a little more uh, uh, representative. I don't... I didn't answer the question again. <laughs> Sorry. I tried. <laughs> I did my best. What was the question? <laughs> oh, where do they come from? Oh, I think I tried to address it. Yeah. Okay. 
Good. Okay. I'd be happy to, um, again, I saw, apologize for apologizing all the time and being sort of, I don't know, I'm just kind of extra vulnerable because I know so many of you and, well, maybe the seven beers didn't help either. And then, uh, I don't, I don't know, I feel, I hope I didn't let anybody down. I feel like a loser. Okay, good. Well, thanks for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.